fact of the matter is you're concentrating on yesterday's breakthroughs. It is the week of May 16th, and welcome to episode 132 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, we have Carmen Medina, NSI Advisory Board member and the former Deputy Director of Intelligence at the Central Intelligence Agency, Rob Walker, NSI Fellow and Executive Director of the Homeland Security Experts Group, Matthew Ferraro, Senior Fellow at NSI and Counsel at the international law firm Wilmer Hale, and myself, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Okay, folks, many developments with respect to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Finland and Sweden, my Scandinavian cousins have indicated that they are ready to join NATO. Uh, Turkey, a NATO member, has laid out its conditions for support of these potential new members. There are reports that U.S. intelligence helped Ukraine sink the Russian ship Moskva last month. And the U.S. Congress, perhaps this week, is about to pass $40 billion in assistance for Ukraine, an amount unimaginable three months ago. Meanwhile, Russian forces are again bogged down in Ukraine, unable to achieve their military goals. We've got a lot to talk about. So, Carmen, let's start with uh, my Scandinavian cousins, and let's call the Finns Scandinavians for purposes of this argument. I know they're not on the Scandinavian peninsula, but let's talk about the Finns and the Swedes joining NATO. Uh, This clearly is indicative, it seems to me, that the Russian uh, assessment of the situation with Ukraine was way off and that uh, their effort to go into what they see as a subsidiary of Russia has, instead of dividing the West, has galvanized the West and brought it together, uh, at, at least in this sense. How, how did Putin and his uh, in, insiders get this so wrong? Well, you know, the U.S. intelligence community has recently come under some sharp criticism about how it was unable to assess correctly the Ukrainian will to fight, something that is covered in depth in in most political science courses, I'm sure. Putin made and his advisors made similar mistakes uh, to what other thinkers about the situation there And I would say uh, that they used uh, kind of traditional cognitive rationalist techniques to understand the situation. So whatever you could measure materially is what led to their assessment. And there are some things that we cannot measure materially. And there may be some controversy about that, but I am I'm positive that there are some things that are important in human life and society that we cannot measure materially. I think that we may have had a bit of a domino effect going on. In other words, after three or four days, when it became clear, perhaps the start of the second week, that Zelensky and the Ukrainians had a significant will to fight, that NATO then realized that they were backing a potentially winning uh, uh, element in in this war. And that just uh, motivated them and snowballed into more and more support. I think another element perhaps in in Putin's uh, misjudgment is the fact that only a year earlier, President Trump had been in office and had certainly been doing things that indicate, you know, he had been denigrating NATO Perhaps I don't want to be unfair to President Trump, but he had certainly said things about NATO that were questionable. And I'm sure 
Putin was paying attention to that. So I think, uh, you know, classic mistake about only counting what you can measure and not counting what you can't measure. And uh, perhaps an over-reliance on Trump's uh, view of NATO. And third, it was something that was precipitated, NATO's support, by incredible Ukrainian effectiveness the first week of the war. Carmen, my total nerd brain, uh, to the extent I have one, is going to non-Euclidean geometry right now. Uh Uh, Of course, the best uh, articulator of non-Euclidean geometry was Lobachevsky, who was Russian, Uh uh, who said that parallel lines do meet in our universe. So your anti-rationalist approach here seems to me like the Russians should be good at that, knowing you would think you would think exactly. I mean, I I, there was a very interesting uh, article that I shared on Twitter for uh, political and intel geeks that appeared in, in a political science journal talking about the question of national mood. What is national mood? How important is it in human societies? Very. And how it escapes measurement. And in fact, in the article, the academic argues that the only way to assess national mood is through intuition, that uh, you can't assess it through rational cognitive capacities or techniques. I I thought that was a fascinating article and opens up and I think is relevant to the Ukraine situation and opens up, you know, really interesting areas of exploration. So the Russians are not in touch with their own intuition. Well, I, I apparently not. And of course, let me just say that the idea of going off to war against uh, a weak uh, opponent that they totally underestimate is actually a theme in Russian history. Uh, so uh, I don't know. It's perhaps it's a it's a it's it's a classic Russian tragedy is what it is. Perhaps a, a philosophical dilemma. So let me pull in some of our off-air banter about uh, uh, Andrew C. Marshall in the Office of Net Assessment over at DOD. This, this is a historic, as Carmen mentioned, this is a historic problem. We have a very difficult understanding of measuring our enemy's capacity. I think Carmen was referring more to Putin's capacity measurement on Ukraine. Let me flip it around to our side measuring the Russian capacity to fight. It's easy to count tanks, bullets, planes, et cetera. That stuff is easy. We have you know, ways of doing that through satellite, through electronics, et cetera, et cetera. But what is very difficult to measure is the quality of training, the commitment to the, to the, the profession of arms of those that are in service. Uh, for the Russian military, that's usually the officer corps because they don't have a strong non-commissioned officer corps like Western nations tend to do. Uh, so it's extremely difficult. And, and let me remind the listeners that in the 90s, we gutted, we absolutely gutted our human intelligence capabilities across all of our service, uh, not only the military, but our, our covert agencies as well. And that is the most critical portion to get in and determine that morale level is getting people on the ground, building sources and, and connections and getting that vast understanding of what truly is the morale of, of the service. This isn't the first time the Russians have done this. I mean, you can look as recently as, as Afghanistan in 1980, when the bear went over the mountain and they failed to beat, you know, beat an insurgent force uh, that had a grand will to fight and the Russian clips didn't have the same level of commitment. So there, there are other historical implications here. And going back to Carmen's uh, old role and old work, uh, I think, you know, we as the United States need to recommit ourselves uh, to a, a human capacity that is bar none 
uh, compared to any other in the world. All right, Rob, let me kind of pivot a little bit from that. But uh, relatedly, uh, the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, said a couple of weeks ago, quote, we want to see Russia weakened to the degree that it can't do the kinds of things it has done in invading Ukraine, unquote. So I have to say, as much as I am gung-ho on helping the Ukrainians fight the Russians here, I'm a little worried that we ourselves are suffering from mission creep and our, uh, maybe our eyes are getting too big for our own capabilities. What, what's your reaction to that statement? Yeah, I didn't quite read it as mission creep yet. Um, if he were talking about moving American forces into Ukraine proper, that to me would certainly be mission creep. As of now, I see it as the United States defense uh, apparatus coming in full strength and supporting our friend, they're not an ally, our partner, uh, Ukraine. Now, pause, break, break. Rob Walker's assessment on what would be mission creep, and here's here's what I would recommend. We reach out to all of our NATO allies. If you have any Soviet bloc era equipment, ship it to Ukraine right now. We will put forces into your country with a with a same capacity or better and capability, and we will will provide that stopgap measure while you sit your forces over your equipment, not your people, over to Ukraine. The Ukrainians are mostly trained on Soviet-era equipment. They can readily accept it into their force. They can beat the Russians back and perhaps take back Crimea and the Donbass. Uh, In the meantime, we truly standardize NATO through this. We get American forces with training uh, forward in places like Poland, Czechoslovakia, the Baltics, we get the American industrial base kicked back up and we start pumping out M1 Abrams, whatever the follow-on to the Bradley is. We pull F-15s, F-16s out of the boneyard and ship them over to our allies. And now NATO benefits from common interoperability, more common um, ammunition and logistics requirements, and Ukraine starts to uh, be able to go on the counteroffensive and retake its own territory. Matthew, I want to get you in here. What's your assessment of how we're thinking about the end game for this conflict? Now, to the extent the way we're thinking about it matters, and, and I think it does, um, are, are we thinking about this in a rational way or uh, an intuitive way? Like, what's your take? Sure. I, I last wonderful to be with you and Carmen and Rob, uh, as always. One thing I wanted to say about the on the last point is that when I was in the intel community, we talked about the difference between secrets and mysteries. And it's always easier to know secrets, uh, how many bullets are in the gun or how many uh, tanks are in the field. And it's much harder to figure out mysteries like, will the Russian soldier actually fight or fight well? So um, I think being humble about that is important. Anyway, to your point, uh, to your question, rather, I I do think we are being realistic about our war aims. Uh, So let me give you a couple of thoughts. The the first is it's important to emphasize that our goals remain pretty limited. Uh, What Secretary Austin said, notwithstanding, we are not in favor of regime change. Um, We've been able to compartmentalize our relationship with Russia so far. Our ambassador, John Sullivan, remains in Moscow. The Russian ambassador remains in the U.S. We had a recent success with the prisoner hostage exchange. And I think it's in, it's crucial to abide by the Teddy Roosevelt maxim to speak softly and carry a big stick, which is to say I see very limited utility and a lot of downside in trumpeting the connection between Ukrainian battlefield successes and our efforts. These are Ukraine, Ukraine's victories. And the more distance between our efforts and Russian defeats the better. Uh, second, I think a reasonable goal to sort of more directly answer your question uh, would be a return to the status quo ante on February 24 before the full Russian invasion, leaving to negotiations, the resolutions of Crimea and the portions of the Donbass that Russia controlled before uh, the most recent invasion. Having said that, and you intimated this as well, Les, 
much of this will depend on Ukraine's view. This isn't a proxy war. It's an invasion by Russia of Ukraine, and it's up to Ukraine to vindicate its sovereignty. If it's in the Ukraine's and uh, the world's interest, I believe that Russia lose on the battlefield and not derive any territorial benefit from its attack. But precisely what Ukraine is willing to accept, I think we really have to defer to Kiev. Sure. Uh, all right. Let's let's pivot to the politics here, the American politics. You know, we're called fault lines for a reason. We're, we try to find differences between right and left. There's a massive aid bill going through Congress right now. By the time our listeners hear this, it may have passed the Senate and be on its way to the president. $40 billion for for the Ukrainians, I think 30 of which is, uh, or nearly 30 of which is military assistance, which is which is a, a tremendously significant amount. There's also important economic assistance to sustain Zelensky's government. While this invasion is going on, we may end up having to do more of that. Um, both Republicans and Democrats are, are lining up in, in support of this, with the exception of perhaps the Trumpian nationalist right, and not even necessarily all of those. There were about 50 votes against this in the House. There's a vast majority of Republicans in the House supported it. What do folks think of of this. Is this a, a reordering of our politics on national security issues or is this a, a one off? Rob, I'm looking at you. Uh, Les, my uh, my take is it's a one off. Um, the nation has rallied around the, this common message and this you know common support predominantly. But there are slight cracks in, the, in an otherwise you know, deep fissure um, below the ice. And I, I think evidence of that is you don't see a similar package moving through as rapidly in support of Taiwan or anyone else along China's uh, periphery who may be facing um, an, an increasing Chinese threat in, in any time soon. You had the isolationist types, you had Rand Paul uh, stand up against it or has delayed the initial package um, for, you know, for, probably for some legitimate reasons. There's good questions about why are we send, you know, spending more in, uh, in a matter of four months in Ukraine than we did over the course of several years in Afghanistan. Um, and we threw up our hands and, and left that place. I understand Carmen covered for me on the last call that I was uh, absent for, but let me throw in the homeland aspect of it here. If we can take 10% of that $40 billion, and throw it towards the border, uh, we are going to see a, a, an immediate reduction in, in the case of fentanyl, in the case of uh, um, illicit migration of drugs and other goods. I mean, look at the border now and you're seeing uh, Ukrainians pop up in, in Southwest border. Um, this is starting to become a global issue, uh, not just a regional issue. So I think there's other ways we can spend some money. I'm not saying turn any faucets off towards Ukraine. I'm saying spend money elsewhere too. Uh, on the greater national security perspective. Carmen, what's your sense of domestic politics here? Well, as you know, domestic politics is not my writ ever, uh, but I will say that uh, it's uh, convenient, I guess, for Ukraine. That doesn't sound right. That sounds callous. But the fact that there are large East European blocks of voters, and specifically Ukrainian voters in Ohio, Mm -hmm. Pennsylvania, and I'm not familiar, but perhaps Wisconsin, three of the states where the Senate battles are going to be decided, uh, and maybe even Florida, because certainly a lot of people from the Atlantic, mid-Atlantic and and New England have moved down to Florida and retired there. So I I think the Republicans realize that they can, uh, you know, the, 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 the America first block, let's let's say, realizes that they that they can't afford to alienate these voters in very close Senate races. So I, I think that's that's where, where we're at. I think, you know, part of what has allowed this support to galvanize around Ukraine is the uh, 
incredibly sophisticated media and public relations operations of Zelensky and the Ukraine government. And I don't think too many other countries that might come into peril in the next few years are going to be able to uh, organize that kind of effort, although they're, they're going to try to learn from what Zelensky has done. Carmen, I think a terrific point to make that even the most nationalistic of America firsters originally came from somewhere else. Uh, and so you can never really be just America alone in the world because we're all we're all non-Americans at one point. Matthew, try and prove me wrong here. I, uh, I think this is more than a one-off. I think this uh, support is the path forward and is going to be, the, in fact, going to be the path forward for a more bipartisan approach to things, in particular because NATO itself was so was such a divisive issue during the last administration. I mean, you, Republicans and Democrats were uh, at each other's throats over how they talked about NATO. I don't think that's going to be true anymore. What, what do you think? Yeah, listen, I don't want to disagree with you. I think uh, my whole uh, uh, spiel on this is that I, I'm actually a bit more optimistic. So, so let me make four points. The first is I think there tends to be greater common ground on major issues of foreign policy than media narratives would typically have us believe. There's a selection bias in reporting that focuses on the most discordant and contrary voices. And I just don't think that captures the broad support there is in this country for the idea that the United States plays an active and engaged role in the world generally and supporting a democracy like Ukraine battling an imperial power like Russia Specifically, I've called this um, ecumenical internationalism in the past, and I think it's prevalent. Uh, you can find that article online, uh, online somewhere. It was in the repod form, I think. Uh, second, while there, these views are latent, like they exist in the ether, wise leadership can shape them. And this is where I think the president, many members of Congress, and some media figures deserve credit for helping to explain the stakes involved and leading opinion and not just following it. I think that is important. The third, and this gets a, a bit to what Carmen was saying, I really do doff my cap to the U.S. and international media, which is bravely reporting the situation in Ukraine, exposing the dastardly actions of the Russian forces there. I, I think it's hard to underestimate the, the value of that coverage in moving support for the Ukrainian people and for uh, supporting free peoples against subversion generally. And then finally, I was reading an interview in the New York Times with Francis Fukuyama, and he, he had some really interesting points. And he said that, that there's been so much cynicism about the idea of democracy, including many democratic countries, but this war in Ukraine is making it so vivid why it's better to live in a liberal society. Like it's giving us a test case and why it's important not to be complacent and to remain vigilant. And I, I hope that that continues and that we continue to see that moving forward. All right, let's pivot to our uh, second topic, which is uh, intellectual property and the Chinese economy. Uh, a lot of news on IP theft lately. Uh, just this month, the Boston-based security firm Cyber Reason reported that uh, Chinese government-linked hackers tried to steal sensitive data from about three dozen manufacturing and technology firms in the U.S., Asia, and Europe. It's not exactly a surprise. The U.S. business community has been complaining about IP protections and the rule of law in China and, and related issues for years, really a couple of decades. Matthew, I'm going to come right back to you. There's uh, There are more and more reports out really almost by the hour now that the uh, that China's economy is not in a great place. It's not what it used to be. Growth rates are down. Xi Jinping's zero COVID policy is alarming everyone. You can see 
in these uh, satellite photos, the the ships stacked up off the east coast of China. It's 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 incredible. What's your assessment of how this economic issue and and IP theft are connected? Sure. Well, well, just on the premise, I, I do think it's true that the that the zero COVID strategy has slowed down uh, substantially consumer spending, vehicle purchases, manufacturing in general, like everything in China right now. I, I don't know how long-term that's going to be. I, I do think that China has an enormous domestic market. It has a well-educated workforce. It has a lot of technology. Uh, and so I think that in time, it'll get back on its feet. But I, I don't doubt that in the short term, this is true. Uh, on the other point, I'll just be brief. I think you know IP theft is at the core of China's fused economic and military policy. I expect the government to steal secrets to support economic growth in good times and bad times and medium times. And so I I just think it's going to continue as it ever was. Rob, while all this is going on, Xi Jinping is is cracking down in other ways on the high flyers in the Chinese economy. He's imposing regulations and restrictions and even uh, disappearing the occasional capitalist. While all this is and and then also, of course, he's going for a third five-year term in the fall. All indications are, whenever this uh, National Party Congress is scheduled, uh, this is breaking with decades of successful, China, arguably successful Chinese governance. Is there an opportunity for the United States here while all of this? maneuvering and restructuring is going on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Xi is taking a play from the Putin playbook, right? Let me uh, let me take a term limit and turn it into a positive somehow and rewrite the whole constitution so I can be uh, president or premier for life. It, listeners may remember that Putin took a, a quote unquote break and served as the prime minister for one term while uh, while his uh, lapdog was the president and then they revamped the constitution so Putin could come back. She's doing similar activities, uh, although he doesn't see the need to go, you know, take a back seat for one term to the premiership. He's uh, he's basically rewritten a lot of the party laws and a lot of the party bylaws to to have his name in, in them and, and to cement his position as uh, second only to Mao. And that's probably only a half step down, not a full step down. Uh, there's a great opportunity here for the American business community and the American industrial base. And, and that is for us to welcome with wide open arms and wide open economic policies, those manufacturing uh, uh, companies that are that offshored in the 80s and 90s, reshore them or nearshore them. And by that, I mean, uh, set them up with guarantees, uh, you know, tax benefits, uh, you know, open up opportunities, waive restrictions and regulations to get them back here as soon as possible. And by nearshoring, I mean, we, we work with our partners uh, in, in this hemisphere, uh, Latin and South America, and we ensure that there are opportunities for American businesses to come and to, uh, to build factories. This is a long lead time, right? I mean, this, this is not this is not a magic wand. This will take three to five years to implement in most cases, sometimes longer based on the um, complexity of the manufacturing process and the, and the training required within. Um, but there's a great opportunity for us here to start decoupling from uh, the Chinese maker economy and, and us as a, as a consumer economy and blend our economy to be more healthy and robust and, and rounded out. Carmen, I want to turn your analytical powers to the more comfortable zone of, of foreign politics here. This balancing act that Xi Jinping, by the way, your domestic analysis was terrific, but uh, Xi Jinping here is is doing an amazing balancing act on the world stage, 
billion and a half uh, constituents, perhaps the biggest economy in the world, pandemic, and he's blowing up the whole governance structure. Uh, he's cracking down in 18 different ways on uh, lives in, in China. Can he pull this off? I wonder, you know, uh, my favorite thinker on China is a very dear friend of mine. And I pulse this individual on a regular basis. And just uh, yesterday, this individual said they were getting weird vibes from China. Now, some of those weird vibes was documented in an article by the Wall Street Journal a few days ago, where they talked about there is a premier in China, Li Keqiang. Huang, I think is how you pronounce it. And he, when she became president, he and she were the two main contenders. And he had to settle for number two. And she uh, over the years has taken away mo most of that economic portfolio. But in recent weeks, Li has become much more prominent in the Chinese press. In fact, I was reading that he has appeared 22 times more often in Chinese newspaper headlines in 2021 than he did in 2020. And now in 2022, the pace is even stronger. And he made a speech recently where he talked about the need to recalibrate economic policies so that we don't, uh, you know, throw out the baby with the bathwater, that we don't lose our economic momentum. So for my favorite China watcher, what this was how this was particularly interesting was not necessarily that this that Premier Li was saying these things, but why was he saying them now? In other words, what was his calculation that, as many China watchers seem to think, he feels a little bit bolder in saying things that are at least indirectly critical of Qi. One theory is that. Okay, perhaps the approval of the third term is a foregone conclusion in the fall. But at the same time, they're going to appoint the new people around Chi who will be the successors. And perhaps uh, there's maneuvering now to see who's going to get in those key positions. So the bottom line is, uh, I think, you know, he is she there's there's an interesting level of intrigue going on in Chinese politics that I don't think we've seen since the late, I don't know, the period before the Cultural Revolution, where there's clearly differences of view that cannot be easily resolved. That's terrific. Let's let's pull this back a little bit to the to kind of the intellectual property rule of law question. Last year, 2021, one fifth or about a thousand of the 5,000 active FBI counterintelligence cases uh, involved China. 60% of the FBI's trade secret cases involved China. Is this a sustainable way for China to run uh, a world-class economy and become a superpower? Matthew Ferraro, I'm looking at you. Thanks for coming back to this, Les. Uh, yeah, this is a, a big issue, and I wish it got the attention that it deserves. And just so the listeners can kind of understand the depth of this, I mean, you, you'll have situations where there'll be a, a company in China that says, we need to figure out how to make this widget. And then they'll go to the, the security service and they'll say, can you hack into a company overseas that knows how to make this widget and we'll just take that technology? I mean, it's, it's, almost, uh, it's almost that to order. 
And I've, I've written about this uh, for a while, years ago in The Diplomat, when, when China breached the, uh, the OPM, the Office of Personnel Management, in an apparent effort to compile dossiers. Remember this on tens of millions of Americans who had no responsibility for U.S.-China relations? I was one of those uh, victims. And for decades, Beijing spy agencies have been engaged in it, what is a far-reaching industrial espionage campaign that targets the IP of a swath of industries, from biotech to clean energy to absolutely everything. All told, it's been said that China's digital pilfering amounts to probably the biggest transfer of wealth through theft and piracy in the history of mankind. So it annoys me to no end the caterwauling that accompanies discussions of America's espionage activities when they are so fundamentally different from China's. American agencies operate within a legally and politically accountable system subject to extensive legal and judicial oversight, legislative oversight, judicial oversight, uh, absolutely everything, executive oversight. U.S. intel agencies do not engage in economic espionage for the benefit of state-owned companies, as China's do. Some people think we should, but we don't. So uh, so some may say that this is all all's fair and love, war, and economic statecraft. But at the least, Washington needs to call Beijing to equal account for its behavior. Washington should openly reject the moral equivalency that treats China's actions as par for the course in global affairs. It should speak out against the double standard where American spy agencies, which operate, as I said, under greater scrutiny, conduct less intrusive collection and respect more rights, are skewered, while Chinese agencies, which operate without any accountability and conduct far more invasive activities, escape censure. So I really think that in the cyber arena, the U.S. should insist that all powers are held to uniform terms. And to answer your question directly, I mean, I think the truth is less that they think that they can steal their way uh, to global preeminence, and only time will tell if they're right. Armin, Rob, what do you think? So the answer to the question directly, yes, this can get them to superpower status, but I, I think it's a blip on the radar that they would achieve that status and would not be able to maintain it unless you're developing your own culture of innovation and, and research and development, not stealing that which you wish to have, as Matt adeptly described, uh, you, you, they're not going to be able to maintain that lead status. Uh, so they might have, you know, in terms of like the, the export figures might be high and might be leading, uh, but they can't create, you know, at, at this point, they can't create the next iPhone or, or electric car, or things like that, that are going to be revolutionary to the next phase of the con- economics in the, in the world. Uh, I would point the listeners too to uh, an FBI movie, uh, a legitimate film made by the Federal Bureau of Investigation uh, called uh, Made in Beijing. It's a, about a 30-minute documentary uh, that goes over uh, four case studies of uh, economic espionage that were uh, occurred right here in our own homeland uh, that uh, the Chinese were able to steal, uh, in some cases, $30 billion worth of research effort by Bear, uh, Bear Farmer, not Bear Pharmaceuticals, Bear Agriculture. Uh, there was uh, a, a very odd case of stealing uh, code from uh, American superconductor manufacturer up in um, Massachusetts, and then ending up putting that same code under the Chinese, you know, uh, new name uh, onto a wind turbine that was 30 miles away from the superconductor's uh, uh, world headquarters in Massachusetts. So it's it's a tragic story, um, but it's one that we need to pay very hard and strong attention to. Um, so it. I know we do a lot of bashing of the previous administration. I'd like to say one positive thing is that uh, for sure, elevating the National Counterintelligence and Security Center 
Bill Evanina was the first Senate confirmed director. So kudos to, to the Senate and, and, and the administration for making that community a much more prominent community within the intelligence community. And that helps to galvanize the efforts across the IC to understand not only the Chinese threat to intellectual property, but, you know, truth and lending here, our friends do it to us as well. The French and the, and the Israelis are two, some of the two biggest uh, uh, you know, economic buys that we have uh, that we go up against. Uh, so, you know, I appreciate that that now the government has a focal point within ODNI, uh, within the the director's office that can focus in on on this effort, the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. Carmen. Well, I think that China faces some really turbulent years uh, ahead. I mean, the Chinese overall population may actually stop growing this year. And the uh, lockdowns against COVID are, I think, leading people again, uh, Chinese, again, to think about the wisdom of living overseas as opposed to, you know, staying uh, subservient to the whims of the Chinese government. I think, you know, when you're spying constantly and you think that's the way that you're going to get ahead to try to steal intellectual property, fact of the matter is you're concentrating on yesterday's breakthroughs. The fact that the Chinese government doesn't have enough confidence in its own uh, commercial and military industrial base that it feels like it has to steal everything, I think, tells you something uh, rather revealing about what they think their prospects are. Yeah, it really does seem like if Xi Jinping were to be making a pivot right now, it should be to openness and uh, breaking down the walls and China being more engaged with the world. He's really uh, going kind of the North North Korea model here and shutting borders, shutting things down, nailing people inside their homes, not letting them on the Internet. Uh, it's, it's not going to work in the long run. It may not even work in the short run. Let's uh, focus on our third topic, which is uh, the stories that each of us are following that may not be in the front headline on the front page headlines. I will. I'm happy to go out first. Uh, I'm tracking African countries in particular that are looking to exploit the energy situation and promote uh, energy development offshore or in their uh, in their geography. Uh, now that uh, these other sources, Russia in particular, uh, are more troubled. Uh, these kinds of developing countries usually need help from multilateral uh, financial institutions, the so-called IFIs, uh, to get the job done. So there's a, there's a real challenge here for those who are uh, really focused on climate change issues and have have votes in those bodies kind of unlock this opportunity for, for developing countries, but they're really going to be pushing hard for it. My money's on them succeeding uh, and pushing the West to have a more open approach. Okay, who wants to go next? Uh, I'll go. Uh, because I had several that I actually uh, thought about in terms of this. Um, I'll just mention quickly the good news thing that uh, Queen Elizabeth showed up in person at public events at Windsor Castle uh, yesterday. They were associated with horses. So, so, of course, that's an important priority for her. But she, from the pictures I've seen, looked good, was interacting and so forth. And so I thought that was... Uh, a good thing uh, for uh, the stability and the sense of the mood of the English people. The other thing uh, tragic is I'm following this uh, historic breakout of COVID in North Korea, where they've gone from just a few cases to, I think, a million cases. 
in one day. And apparently the uh, North Koreans had some big honking military parade on April 25th that has now been identified as a huge super spreader event for COVID. And, I, you know, I just worry, you know, just as a, you know, humane citizen of the world, what the consequences are for that kind of COVID in a country that is, by all accounts, impoverished. Uh, and uh, also what the ripple effects that might have on China or South Korea, for that matter. Rob, time to beat that dead horse. Uh, the border, the border, the border. Uh, border security is national security. Border security is uh, local well-being and local, uh, you know, uh, community well-being. Uh, what do I say that for? Fentanyl deaths last year increased increased 15% year over year uh, from 2020 to 2021. That's not a historic jump. Of course, the historic jump was 19 to 20, which we saw a 30% rise. Uh, what's the source of fentanyl? Guess what? China imports the raw materials or exports the raw materials into Latin and in South America, predominantly Mexico, where it's combined, manufactured, and shipped across the border uh, in illicit ways uh, via, via mules, via drones, a whole bunch of uh, they'll take any way they can to get it across, much like the Colombian cartels did with cocaine in the 80s. Um, these are businesses. They're not, uh, you know, they, they will find every way they can to uh, to make their profit. Uh, they don't care about the human well-being of smuggling people across the border. They're sending masses towards us uh, because they know that we can't weed out all of the uh, threats that are in those masses. Uh, so border security is is a critical thing for us to make sure that we, you know, keep our own local communities safe as well as ensuring that, you know, we have a proper flow uh, of folks into our country in a rightful way. Matthew, bring us home. The little known National Artificial Intelligence Research Resource Task Force is writing a roadmap for expanding access to critical resources and educational tools that will spur AI innovation and economic prosperity nationwide. That is the hope. The very first report is due out next week, May 22nd, and I look forward to reading it. I think uh, this is going to be really important for future economic uh, and national security. All right. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Be sure to join NSI for our next event on Thursday, May 26th, with former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to hear his insights on how the U.S. can maintain its leadership in an ever-evolving world. Find out more about this upcoming event and the Institute at nationalsecurity.gmu. If you have topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Jesse Clauber for research assistance, and Ruth Joe for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. 